0: Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by RaptorAid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook, Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. If the fastest falcon on the planet is your cup of tea, then you are in luck because we are about to chat to Ed Druitt, author, tour guide leader and peregrine falcon expert now Ed has been monitoring peregrine falcons for well over 20 years and he has found some absolutely fascinating stuff out about this species Ed's also the author of the book the urban peregrine now I must make a small apology because during this interview my wi-fi cuts out and I completely disappear on Ed but ever the professional he carries on until I manage to log back in so thanks for that Ed we hope you all enjoy the interview. Right. Okay. We should be live on Facebook on Raptor Aid. Everybody. Um, Ed, thank you very much for joining us. Um, those of you that don't know, Ed Druitt is a naturalist superstar. Knows all sorts <laughs> about all sorts. He's wonderful. Um, I'm very fortunate to spend time with him in a raptor study group that we're both involved in in Ed's local area, and and yeah bit of a whiz on peregrines and prey (laughs) remains um, but we'll get on to 22 years now does that make you feel old (laughs) yeah just a bit (laughs) (laughs) so we'll yeah we'll get on to we'll get on to peregrines and your books in a bit um so it's dead straightforward like i just said to you ed and i'll hopefully get some questions in i'll try and keep an eye on facebook yeah
1: lovely i mean if you've got you know if you've got any questions on peregrines or raptors or just simply you know suddenly getting into watching urban peregrines get in touch and ask uh, see if i can help answer your questions
0: that's what we that's what we want um okay well start from i always get people to start from the beginning as i mentioned to you um how Yeah. Tell us a bit about how you got your love of nature, how you got into it. Where was the start? And uh, yeah. And then go go from there, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my love,
1: my love of nature really comes from uh, when I well, I can remember as far back as being six or seven. And my grandma feeding the house sparrows and starlings when they used to be a lot more common back then. Um, Going to feed the ducks. I come from Surrey originally, and in Surrey you've got quite a lot of village ponds. You don't see them in other parts of the country so much, but in Surrey you've got lots of little village or town ponds. And so we used to go and feed the ducks very well, almost every week, you know, with bread and things like that. Uh, I still remember watching coots, you know, just just vigilantly watching these coots nesting on the nest, all that sort of stuff. And then when I went to, so I can remember being interested in nature when I was in in my first school when I was six, seven. Mm -hmm. But then when I went to middle school in Surrey, in Epsom in Surrey, my teachers really encouraged me um, to be into nature, basically. So I had this I had this passion and they encouraged me through sort of doing wall displays in the classroom, uh, you know, bringing in all sorts of skulls and things into the classroom. I remember we found this pheasant wing uh, in the middle in in our in a the church that we used to do our church services at, you know, like like yep. um, Christmas services and all that sort of stuff. So we were, we were there doing, um, I think, artwork or something and, and looking at lichens on gravestones. And I found this wing of a pheasant when I was about 10. Yeah. <laughs> so even at 10 years old, I was interested in in prey remains of stuff. And, and I remember once we, it was a bit gruesome, but we found this jays head in our little nature reserve at our school, cool. brought it into the classroom, and then... Over the weekend, it <laughs> came back in on Monday morning, and it was crawling in maggots. But never mind. But anyway, that's all the sort of stuff that has helped me be what I am. But I also remember we had these plum trees at school, and back then greenfinches were much more common than they are today. And the greenfinches would would feed in these plum trees and preen during during the summertime, and they were molting their feathers and growing new feathers. So as a ten or eleven year old, I'd pick up all their feathers and then bring them home and then try and lay them out in in the in the order that they would be in the wing you know yeah. i had this, got this fantastic feather collection that I, that I that i sort of cooked up as it were when i was 8 9 10 11 and it's my prize kind of feather collection they're in my dad's old cardboard kind of drill boxes that he used to get and then i used to have these layers of cardboard with um cotton wool and and just lay the feathers out and they're still they're up in the loft now you know just as they were from from all those years ago
0: so that's where it all began, then, because you yeah. are a bit of a whiz, really, when it comes to feathers and identification. So it is, and actually, is. my
1: my passion for peregrines comes from more from prey remains and what they eat. So when I when I first went to Bristol University to study zoology,
0: yeah,
1: twenty two years ago, it it was the fact that on the pavement outside Pizza Hut in Bristol <laughs> were these remains of all sorts of things that I didn't have the feathers of skulls of you know so I was dead excited to suddenly have this opportunity to to um to get my hands on these feathers and skulls and that then and and I was also thrilled to to have peregrines in the middle of Bristol as well I mean the reason for going down there in the first place was the thrill of actually seeing peregrines which I'd never really seen much of up until that point and then it was this connection with what they were eating really so it was it was bringing together my interest then in skulls and feathers and what have you
0: brilliant and so is that where it, actually I, there was a question that came into my head before which i'll, I'll come to which i'll do first in terms of school because i never had this and i'm always jealous when people say this i didn't really enjoy i wasn't that fussed by school sure I didn't enjoy it, but i didn't have a teacher that really encouraged it, and I wish I did. When I hear yeah. people say they had Mr. Jones, or like Chris Packham talks of having one of his teachers and yeah. other people do, and did you have that? Did you have a I specific-
1: had, I did, I had two teachers. I mean, actually a lot of my, a lot of teachers encouraged me, but I had two teachers in particular. One of them is dead now, sadly, but the other one I'm still in touch with. Um, so I had one teacher when I was eight years old, so my fir- uh, yeah first year at middle school. And yeah. so, um, so she really encouraged me and got me doing different things. As I say, wall displays and uh, there was a particular book that she'd allow me to go outside of the classroom to read. And then when I went up from her to the next class, the next teacher who I'm still in touch with, she also encouraged me. I remember she used to... She used to live near Walton on the Hill in Surrey, and she so in we used to write these daily journals, and so she'd nice. talk to me about uh, the yellowhammer that she used to hear when she used to go horse riding and what have you,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> things oh, like yeah.
0: that. And that's another good skill that you've been to, you've been taught early then journal writing and stuff like yeah. that. We is- used to
1: have to do this uh, all throughout middle school. We we used to do a journal um, every morning. we we'd have to write. Didn't have to be very long, but we'd do we'd do it every morning, it was, and that was throughout the whole of middle school. We'd do that really,
0: yeah. And it's that, my, go on, sorry, my my, just, my, my third
1: just... and fourth year teachers in the school didn't encourage me so much in the same way, but they still but they still um, supported me, I guess,
0: yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, it just it just going back to the journal thing because it's funny at the end of every talk, and you, I'll give you a, I'll preempt you here. Now I ask the person a, one bit of advice to give someone wanting to get into raptor margin. And funnily enough, Eugene Potapov, the last talk we did, Doctor yeah. Eugene Potapov picked up his journal on his desk and held that up and said this is write a journal every time you're out in the field write a journal and it's one thing I'm not very good at actually (laughs) I have to admit um yeah I've I've
1: gone sort of up and down with it really I mean throughout throughout I've got some fantastic bird notes in pads that I've written throughout my 20s and then I went out of doing it and then I've gone back into doing it out of doing it what I do do a lot these days is I try and submit a lot of my bird sightings on the British Trust for Ornithology's Bird Track app yeah. um, because I can just do it there and then and I've got two young children now so, so trying to write it out by hand is much harder. But what I do still have is I have a daily journal of, of the garden birds that we see and I submit nice. sightings to the BTO's garden bird watch. So I still do that but but yeah, you're right. And and also I have, um, I have books where I write down all my peregrine-related Prey studies and stuff like that really you know so um
0: brilliant okay so university peregrines outside pizza hut um (laughs) that sounds i mean that that sounds like my perfect peregrine It's no exaggeration pizza
1: hut here this tall building (laughs) called um castle me tower it's still there was here and then the remains on the pavement below and i'm just like
0: that would be perfect. A picture in one, had binoculars <laughs> in the other. Peregrines, magic. Anyway, um, so were peregrines the first raptors that really you got into, or were there any? Was there anything before? No, sparrowhawks, actually, sparrowhawks. First of
1: all, so when I used to live in Surrey, uh, we had woodland and and common land uh, on the other side of the road from us. So when I every day I'd go into the woods after school. And uh, so I got very familiar with the calls of young sparrowhawks. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was back in the '90s, really. So sparrowhawks were still sort of coming back, I guess. So in July, August time, I'd always hear the the screaming calls of the babies. I could never see the darn things, but I could always hear them. And one one year, I found the plucking post of one of the adult birds, and so that was really exciting because I was finding feathers of blue tit and great tit, goldfinch, longtail tit. I can still remember finding it in now. I yeah. can still remember the excitement of finding this 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 plucking area you know this plucking post
0: mm-hmm.
1: so Sparrowhawks definitely and then I I ser- I f- saw my first peregrine in in 1990 when I was 10 11 years old no, It was 1991 sorry at Yak Rock so although I come from the southeast I c- I visited Herefordshire with some with um with uh, a friend that lived up the road mm-hmm. saw my first peregrine then and little little did I know that seven or eight years later I'd then be you know, watching them in more detail, really. But I'd say, I'd say, I grew up with sparrowhawk and kestrels more so, really. Yeah. Buzzards in in back in in the nineties and the noughties, we didn't have any buzzards. We do now, but no buzzards. We had no red kites. Yeah. Um. So really, really, back in the nineties, it was just kestrels. They were still doing pretty well then, and sparrowhawk. That was
0: it. Yeah. A lot of funnily enough, we've we've probably talked about I don't know twelve or. 14 people now on this and Sparrowhawk comes up a lot as people's bird that they you know remember the most yeah one of the first birds for monitoring anywhere you know and finding nests or observing them you know different behaviors and so on so yeah it's quite interesting and it's almost like I suppose Sparrowhawks have dropped off the radar I always think I don't have enough time looking for dropped off a bit a bit
1: of the radar for some people yeah i mean i think for me they were always every year regular in the woods you know um and the young calling in june july time really but i don't having moved more well to bristol first of all i did i did um manage to find a nest at the university of bristol actually back in about 2003 we had a nest actually in the gardens at the university oh. of bristol that was really cool and i actually remember Going there early one morning and actually seeing the male and female collecting nest material, and it was the weirdest thing seeing this this majestic bird of prey, woodland bird of prey, with sticks in its beak. <laughs> it didn't look right.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So that was really yeah. cool. But I live in the Forest of Dean now, and I've got to admit that um, we have a regular sparrowhawk, but. I'm not, I don't really see or hear that much of them. I don't, um, there's a pair not too far from us, about 20 minute walk away, where I have heard them calling and there there is obviously, there's definitely a territory in a nest there. But I definitely don't, I don't have the same relationship with the Sparrowhawk that I had when I was growing up. Definitely not.
0: Well, that's because you're you're in the heart of the bigger cousin, (laughs) aren't you there? So uh, keep the sparrows keep keep their heads down a bit maybe. Yeah. yeah um i yeah i i remember one of my most vivid childhood memories was sitting on the playing field but and in the village we used to live and a sparrowhawk coming over the top of the head right in front of us seeing us swerving off and dropping wow. a blackbird and it had a blackbird in its ah. feet and it dropped it and then flew off and of course all we all scrambled over to the to the blackbird <laughs> to poke it and have a look and it was obviously long deceased and we left it and moved on but yeah that and that's there's a, that was yeah one of my first memories so they are wonderful yeah uh, good. actually
1: about, about a month ago i was just out it was in the evening just getting dusky and i was out i got a little three-year-old and we were just out and at dusk this sparrow i could hear all this screaming sound and this sparrow was flying across the open space at the back of us with a live blackbird's than in its talons oh wow <laughs> my three-year-old you know was taking it all in you know like Good. is it still is it still alive daddy you no know, it is still alive yes but it's not going to be for very long much sooner I'm afraid
0: wow what what a thing to see at three years old that's awesome I know. <laughs> okay okay so peregrines obviously have, have, have made up when did when is it was it Bristol and they really started to become a big part yeah of so
1: So back in 1998, when I went to Bristol, I, there was a chap called John Tully, he's not alive anymore now, but he basically had already been studying the diet of peregrines in Bristol and he had set up the, the Bristol Ornithological Club had set up um, a peregrine watch in the 1990s because back then peregrines were more vulnerable to being um, persecuted in the Avon Gorge. Mm-hmm. and so the BOC had set up this watch etc. So by the time I came in 1998 that was all quite well established yeah. and I was, really, I was really an eager student really and I really wanted to see see wild peregrines in Bristol so John took me down to the city centre in Bristol and showed me them and um, he helped me sort of collect the prey and, and it kind of went from there really.
0: Oh, yeah. well, I kind of
1: took over, he was getting to a point in his life where I think he was he was wanting to sort of pull back a bit on peregrine staff and and giving talks in the evenings about birds you know he was he was retired and just wanted to sort of pull back a bit so it was an opportunity for me to to move forward with it yeah and to be honest really looking back now 20 years um I think I was just I was just you know you often hear this a bit of a cliche but I was there at the right place at the right time I don't think a young 18 year old would have the same almost like relationship or opportunity with peregrines today because there are peregrines everywhere today and there's people everywhere watching them. But back then you have to remember that the only people really watching peregrines in urban locations was um, somebody in Exeter, a few Nick Dixon, a few people down in Sussex, uh, Graham Roberts, for example, Dave Morrison in in London, and that's about it. Whereas now there's, you know, there's over a hundred kind of town and city locations, each with their own kind of like champion group, which is fabulous, of course. But I don't think I would have. I, I was very lucky, I think, to be there just at the right place at the right time to sort of um, a, establish, I guess, a, a certain place with, with studying peregrines.
0: So, yeah, I suppose that's an interesting question, really. When So wh- I, I don't think I've ever asked or thought about this question um because yeah I've, I've just taken it for granted per- urban peregrines when were really when did the phenomenon if you want to call it that start where Wait, so it started
1: you- to happen in the late 90s so in the late 90s you had birds in Exeter, Chichester, Brighton possibly um, right. in London and that was about it um yep. so it, then when we got to the noughties, to the 2000s, you had them in places like Bath, for example. Um, I think you were starting to get some birds in the London area. But again, you know, that was about it. Yeah. Then when we get to the mid-2000s, um, they were definitely starting to appear in many, many more places by this point. Um, so, yeah, but certainly I, I would say sort of mid, mid to late 90s was when they really started to appear in in, in key, key urban locations. Yeah. And then it was the early 2000s that they really started to nest in places like Bath. And then it's from those places they've sort of spread out really, you know. So throughout the two, th- I would say that it, re- it really started to, urban locations really started to get covered by peregrines during the 2000s. That's, that's when the, the coverage just went woof blanket, you know. Probably, probably from about 2005 more, I'd say. I'd say it was still quite slow up until about 2004, five, and then I'd say I'd say in the last fifteen years it's just really gone, you know. Yeah,
0: spiked. Yeah, all yeah, yeah gone up. Was there again? I don't know the answer to this. So I'm going to ask you: Was there any? Was this known well enough in other countries? It, it wasn't something that was unique to the UK. I'm assuming America, maybe. Where was it happening? Yeah, so
1: in America, I think urban peregrines were. More established, but I think really across the whole world it happened around very similar times. To be honest, yeah. when you I went to a peregrine conference in two thousand and seven, and it was very clear that peregrines were creeping into urban locations, but it, it seemed to be a very Western European thing. So although it was happening in um, Eastern European countries. Generally then, and actually even now, a lot of peregrines there are still quite sort of mountain mountain birds, actually. They're still, there are some urban birds, for example, in Hungary and Romania, but, but generally they're much more rural mountain birds. So the urban phenomenon is there, but it's much more of a Western European thing. The Netherlands, France, Germany, a bit of Poland, Switzerland, you know, Spain and what have you. But it really all happened about the same sort of time. Germany and Britain have got the highest kind of peregrine populations in in Europe, certainly in Western Europe. So, as you might imagine, they've got the sort of highest numbers of pairs using towns yeah. and cities. Um, Germany as well. Germany's probably got some of the, some of the Germany's probably got the most number of pairs using not just town statistics, but also industrial locations cooling towers, yeah. power stations that sort of stuff but as you go further east towards russia you find less and less urban birds that's partly i think because there's less of them and they're less they're less dense yeah you know what have you but i think for the, the phenomenons everywhere all around the world australia south america you know i was in argentina yeah in the capital back in uh, when was a february last year and you know there's peregrines using big high tall towers and those aren't breeding. I think they're birds from very southern Argentina that were wintering in the city um, in uh, Buenos Aires, but but nonetheless, still, still using the city.
0: Still using, yeah. But yeah. I'd say
1: you, when you look at the histo- history books, though, um, Britain's got some of the earliest records of urban peregrines. So there's peregrines that would have used Salisbury Cathedral in the mid-1800s. There's records of birds using the Natural History London Society have got records of peregrines using St Paul's Cathedral in the early 1900s and in Germany they've got records of peregrines using their kind of fabulous old castles in the 1930s and 1940s. So, but it was still very occasional then. It wasn't until the post-war, post-DDT pesticide Mm -hmm. era that peregrines really sort of came back with a boom and what we think's happened to it is they've saturated rural uh, coastal and rural locations and then really come into towns and cities really.
0: And that's uh, yeah it's interesting to hear those hi- historical um points because one of the probably that I get thrown at me a lot by anyone who's anti peregrines in urban areas usually some someone relating to the pigeon fancying fraternity uh, mm is that oh it's not natural they shouldn't be there when actually if you're talking about them being you know utilizing not necessarily nesting on on buildings in the 1900s then it couldn't be any more natural could it no absolutely and of
1: course what we what we don't know of course is is you know before records began as well you know birds of prey uh, you know have gone through quite a tough time really over the last sort of three or four hundred years but prior to that um they were regarded very highly in society and yeah. so actually it's quite possible that before records began um they were using some of some places like, i mean Chukesby Abbey may well have been used by peregrines 500 600 years ago before they went through that phase of of being on the wanted list you know kind of thing so um yeah we just we just don't don't know that really I'm very optimistic that, that um, peregrines are probably doing the best they've ever done today um, but actually if we go back in time before they were persecuted and, and used for taxidermy and um, you know t- taken out by gamekeepers etc that, that hopefully they were doing much better than what they are today. I seem to have lost you a bit there
0: Jimmy. <laughs> hopefully we'll get hopefully we'll
1: get Jimmy back in a moment it looks like that uh, he'll call back in a moment but yes if if you are watching peregrines or you've got peregrines close to where you are wherever you are in urban locations really it's worth looking out for them Uh, young birds are starting to fledge now and uh, so are quite noisy uh, when they're calling mum and dad for food and also just much more visible And actually over the next month, they'll be flexing their wings, exercising. Mum and dad will be bringing in food for them and letting that food go, sometimes alive, sometimes dead, which the young peregrines will then be chasing after. So it's a fabulous time now to go to a city or a town near where you are and and actually to keep an eye out and watch uh, for peregrines Uh, or, or of course, in your rural areas as well. But a lot of um, town and city peregrines are often ahead of rural peregrines in terms of when they are nesting so the bath peregrines for example actually fledged just early this week um, which is potentially a month earlier than peregrines that might well be fledging from quarries here uh, in the forest of dean for example so there's lots of exciting stuff coming over the coming weeks or so and perhaps actually also more interesting than than if you had been watching peregrines just solely on a webcam uh, on a nest because of the fact that actually when they're flying around and screaming around there's lots of interactions between them and often other birds like for example urban gulls like herring gulls, lesser backpack gulls etc. So it's definitely worth um, getting out and about and looking for um, those young peregrines which are going to be fledging over the coming weeks. Now I'm not sure what's happened to Jimmy. Let's just have a little look and see whether he's going to come back with this. Ah, here he comes now. Ah, you're back, Jimmy. <laughs> Keep going. I kept going there, so hopefully.
0: <laughs> I I sorry about that. My Wi-Fi is dreadful today. And then I was like, oh, I've dropped out. So I assumed it would cut you out. And then I've looked at Facebook and you're still talking on your own. <laughs> so you're an absolute <laughs> professional. That is brilliant. Sorry. I, I, I heard I a bit about you talking about dropping food.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I was just I was just talking about the fact that um, now is that is is a fabulous time to get out and about and see peregrines because they're just starting to fledge it is their most dangerous time of their perhaps their when they're actually leaving the nest and from an urban peregrine point of view it can be uh the most nerve-wracking because they often end up grounded and have to be put back up but but actually that doesn't always happen in bath this year so far fingers crossed all four chicks have fledged successfully without grounding and usually we don't go a single season without that happening so goodness knows how it's it's happened this year and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they continue to stay in the air but I was just saying about the fact that it is so exciting at this time of the year because the peregrines are wheeling around, they're learning how, their, how to use their wings, mum and dad are bringing in live prey, dead prey, letting them go for the chicks to kind of capture themselves and so it's a very exciting period and then once we get into August, September time it really quietens off because those young birds start to disperse and start to move yeah. a bit further field.
0: Yeah right. I mean, I've we <clears throat> my city, as you know, I've I've told you bit little bits about it, um, Chester. We've luckily there's always been peregrines about, uh, but the con- first confirmed breeding where chicks fledged was 2017, um, on top of the lead shot tower, and uh, and yeah, and then they yeah, so they had three 2017. 3 2018 3, this year they've had four but anyone who's been following fe- ra- our facebook yeah then, <laughs> and there was one grounded on wednesday night that we got called out to and then this morning i went and picked it up so we're gonna try and get that back up onto a building um yeah t- after i finish this is- <laughs> um so uh so yeah it's a uh, thanks for thanks for filling in in there but they are they're That's so right. exciting to watch in cities aren't they and one of the things I, I don't know about i'll ask come to you ask you one of the things i love is the passers-by when we do the peregrine watch they don't really they're out shopping they don't care they're not really interested they might be a little bit intrigued why there's binoculars and the minute they set eyes on a peregrine their whole day changes and they're like this is the best thing i've ever seen yeah and, absolutely and It's so wonderful to see that happen Absolutely. You're I mean, I've been, I've been house quite
1: house. discreetly um, down at Castle Park in Bristol recently, um, monitoring peregrines and doing it as part part of my job. And, um, you know, you, you don't have to stand there very long before people are wanting to know what you're looking at. And and they might know that there's peregrines there, so they're, they're interested to know how they're doing and where they're at. It really is quite, you know, I had it yesterday. I was down there yesterday and, um, sorry, two days ago. And know just stood there with my binoculars just keeping an eye on them and people just people you're you're almost like a magnet (laughs) people come over and want to know what's going on where they are you know what they are sometimes if they don't know what they are yeah Yeah, it's quite an incredible experience actually no it is if if i was just stood there looking at the starlings on the lawn everyone would just walk past but there's something about the fact you're just looking at (laughs) at at the building seems to uh, uh, people behave differently towards you
0: yeah i've i've um yeah i've experienced yeah i've had, had people just been at, at like over the moon and they're like this has made my day that you know we were just out shopping we never knew there was peregrines here so it's a it's yeah it's a wonderful and people really buy into it and that's why i think urban peregrines are so valuable some people say to me oh you know should they be there shouldn't they be there and i'm like the the amount the 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 reach that they have for people who don't normally think about birds of prey and predators is fantastic. Absolutely.
1: And actually, over the last 10 weeks with the lockdown, they're about the only species that has really had, you know, regular webcam that people have been able to follow over the last six weeks. And Wherever you are, whether you're in the southeast, the southwest, northern England, you know, there's been a, a web camera for you, as it were. But there's not really any other accessible bird of prey species I can think of where you can do that at these days. Kestrels are getting scarce and even if they nest in a church it's often inaccessible. Buzzards and Sparrowhawks are very much woodland species where you can't really get cables to. You know peregrines have become this amazing predictable you know I always say to people if you're visiting Bristol you're more likely to see a peregrine these days than you are a Sparrowhawk buzzard or kestrel. I mean that's saying something and um, you know during this lockdown you know I think a lot of people 700 people the other day voted for the names of the Salisbury peregrines, wow. <laughs> 700 people, I, which I just think is amazing that, you know, so they've really been a, something that people have really followed and wanted to follow really, and I, and I think it's the longevity as well, because you can have a camera on a blue tit nest box, which is lovely, but, you know, the parents are incubating for two weeks, not doing very much, and then the youngsters are only in the box for two weeks, and then they're gone, um, whereas with the peregrine, it's much more drawn out. You know, the eggs are being laid at the end of Feb, uh, end of um, end of March, which people often love to see. Okay, the incubation period is quiet, and the bird isn't doing much. But even so, people still like seeing that happen. Um, and then throughout the whole of kind of um, uh, when well, yeah, May and and first half of June, you know, you've got them them, them growing up. So it's, the, it's a really nice period that people can really watch them over. You know.
0: Yeah, no, it, they, they. I think they, they bring a lot of enjoyment and yeah, inclusivity to a lot of people. Now, I've got a qu- question, but before we come to this, because it kind of links in its, it's to something else we're going to talk about. Um, your book. Show yeah, us the book yeah. again. Ed. It's, it's my book. Urban Paradise. So the reason
1: I wrote it was that in 1993, Derek Ratcliffe. I wish I'd met him, but but an incredible man made the link with his team between why birds of prey were declining and, and ddt and pesticides and he wrote a fabulous book I and mean, it's like you know i use it all the time the peregrine falcon but in his, it's over 300 pages long there's about a page devoted to kind of talking about urban peregrines and that was it mm-hmm. because back then of course when he wrote that book there was they weren't really urban do you know what i mean i mean you know i said to you that they started to come into places late 90s well his book was published mid 90s you know so by the time he'd actually written it and got it to the publishers it was yeah. there weren't really any urban peregrines so night in 2014 well, actually 2013 12 i put the book together and really what i wanted to do was that i i was very conscious that there was lots of information about urban peregrines out there in papers Often foreign papers from from around the world, um, but there was nowhere where they were that was brought together. Yeah. And although there's quite a lot of open access papers these days, certainly back then, even 2014, there wasn't. And a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know or want to access some of those papers anyway because they're not always. The easiest to read yeah so so really I just felt that it was it was time you know we knew enough and it was time to be able to write a book about urban peregrines dwelling peregrines it's written for the non-expert so it's written in a sort of it's, it's written for the non-expert but it's still scientific in the sense that it's, it's still going through the whole biology and how to study urban peregrines but, but it's not written in a sort of dry way you know it's written yeah. hopefully in a, in, a, in a very accessible way and it doesn't shy away from you know talking about conflicts it, it, it you know it does also talk about perhaps how we can all work together to to consider peregrines as well you know and and thinking about man's influence and impact on peregrines but yeah and and, and you know and, and no doubt since I even since I wrote this 6 years ago or had it published 6 years ago there's there's more to add to it I'm sure since then but uh, hopefully this is the kind of first in 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 you know perhaps other publications that will come out about about urban peregrines really
0: well, you look for, there you go you've just lined yourself up for a second edition <laughs> there is a second, yeah I mean the second book
1: I've got another book coming out now which kind of relates to urban peregrines which is all about the, identifying the prey remains of raptors so obviously over the last 20 years I've become very very good at identifying the most minuscule of feathers from a bird and so I've got a bird called raptor prey remains coming out a book even not a bird <laughs> book yeah. called pra- raptor prey remains coming out this month uh, it was delayed by a few months because of um, COVID-19. And what it is, it's a photographic book uh, and it's the first step for somebody that finds feathers or a head or legs or wings on their lawn or if you're actually a raptor specialist going to a nest of a bird. So it's not, you know, it's it's not the kind of, it's the first step of giving you how you are most likely to find that that, that bird mainly yeah. birds it does have some mammals in there as well that like rabbit and and um frog and toad and and other things but it's mainly birds yeah because those are the things that people generally find find the most of and also can be the more the more challenging to identify yeah. so it's the first step and over the last 20 years i've become very accustomed to what it is you're most like to find of a teal duck or a blackbird or um, a woodcock and that's what's illustrated in the book and then there, there is information in the book that can help you go to the next level. Go to something like another book or a website like Featherbase to actually then go to the next step of identifying it or, 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 or going more in depth. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. So that's well, coming I, out that, this month. That, that the Urban peregrine book's brilliant, I, and I, I think it's a real credit to you, Ed, because it's so. I think it, again, it is so important to. To be able to condense all that scientific hard hardness and, and it is you know it's intense some some of the papers and 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 also you know who doesn't like looking at an, a good picture of a peregrine and that beautiful
1: book is- beautiful photographs in there as well. Yeah. I mean that's one thing I'm really proud of because when you're doing a book like this, you know you're doing it for love, not money. Um, but there were some fantastic photographers. I mean the cover photograph is by Sam Hobson who taken some beautiful images of of peregrines in Bristol and Bath but all throughout the book actually people were very generous in in providing photographs of of urban peregrines and um which 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 just really enhances the book when people are reading it and looking at it really you know
0: you know, yeah. it, it's a, it's a credit to you, and I I look forward to seeing the the prime range one because it does <laughs> it, it does interest me. It's, I, I suppose it's one of them morbid things, isn't it? That you, yeah. You, but you I, but just, I hope it's
1: also I hope it's also a beautiful book for people because although it does have lots of dead things in it, there's also some beautiful photographs. I've got some beautiful photographs of um, teal duck feathers against the black background, really, with the beautiful green um, secondary colour. There's there's some beautiful photographs of pheasant feathers and partridge feathers in there and other things as well so it's i hope that it's also a beautiful book in terms of what it's providing and although it does have some perhaps more gory things in there (laughs) um i think i hope that the way it's set out actually it feels it feels appropriate rather than
0: (laughs) yeah yeah macabre Uh, right so well this kind of leads us on to the question there's this this scallywag gareth jones has uh (laughs) has asked what is the largest prey item you have found and i assume it means by species i don't yeah i I think so so it's a
1: really good question so you have to remember that a that a female peregrine falcon weighs over a kilogram she's a big bird male bird is slightly smaller hence its name tearsel kind of two-thirds the size of the female and my specialist area has been studying the diet of urban peregrines. so you have to remember that a lot of prey that peregrines are taking we think are being brought in from From outside, They are taking pigeons and starlings and some birds like even like kingfishers, for example, in some parts of Delbyshire in the city. But we know that they're going out of the city, so they have to be able to carry big prey back. And some of that big prey is just too heavy. So we know, for example, that out in the countryside they will take things like widgeon duck. They will sometimes take little egrets. I've, I've got more than one record of people writing to me and telling me that they've taken down little egrets. They are known to take things occasionally like small geese and grey herons. Um, From my own studies, the largest prey they've taken have been ducks, mainly. So I remember in Bath, um, we found the remains of a gadwall duck, which is kind of about the size of a mallard duck. Uh, In Bristol, I have actually found the feathers of wigeon duck. So mainly duck-sized birds, you know. They're kind of around a similar weight to a wood pigeon. So, um, and genuinely taken by the female, but they're, they're still quite hefty things to be bringing back, you mm-hmm. know, a kilometre or two into a city or so. Anything bigger than that, like maybe a heron or an egret or even a small goose, I think will get eaten in situ in the countryside. Yeah. Absolutely. The smallest bird has been yeah. gold, things like gold crest and wren. They do very occasionally take those more often they take things like blue tit great tit, um, even chiff chaffs willow warblers they will take amazingly um, so so probably the male taking those yeah yeah, so the whole yeah. spectrum
0: what one of the first peregrine sites under license I was lucky to be invited to and go along to many years ago, but I'll never well, I' never forget it for two reasons it was at a cement work, so it was filthy <laughs> yeah. And then um, yeah, we'll up up one of the lift shafts, um, and then we got up to the nest. And there was a uh, there was a kingfisher head in it, and I never forget it. And I was absolutely blown away by the fact that, obviously, you, you, for me, your imagination starts running away. Yeah. And you think, Wow! Imagine that flight—a tear—a tear suffering a male taking a kingfisher. But yeah, yeah you think about. And I've spoken so to,
1: to people from from Yat Rock. Um, I think Steve Watson particularly, and um, you know, peregrines are actually being seen almost like lining up with the kingfisher to then grab it. And most recently in Belper in Derbyshire, they've been taking some urban kingfishers. Um, and again, you know, seeing them in the talons of the, of the peregrine is quite remarkable. <laughs> they, don't take, you know, they don't take kingfishers that often. Um, yeah. Most sites maybe have one or two a year, but in Belper they seem to specialize. And that's the interesting thing actually is that peregrines, different peregrines do specialize. If you talk to a falconer who flies a peregrine, they will always tell you it specializes on rooks or magpies or pheasants, whatever. And it's the same thing with wild peregrines. So, for example, in Salisbury, the pair there specialise on black-headed gulls. I've had swifts. Uh, I've had peregrines in Exeter specialise on swifts. Um, and then, as I say, in per kingfisher. So, although they they take a wide variety of other prey as well, they do seem to develop their own little taste for something as well. I mean, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Woodpeckers. Yeah. So in Cheltenham, they like to eat great spotted
0: woodpeckers. See, that's another. <laughs> that's another one. I mean, you don't you. A lot of people wouldn't consider a woodpecker, they consider him a woodland bird. I'm looking out my window now, there's a woodland just there, and you, you see him hopping about the trees. You don't imagine seeing them out in the open sky where a peregrine's going to take them. Um, but they so, do. Yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. But the, the other
1: thing with the prey, though, is it's a real detective story, and one of my most most interesting ones was was I found these these very small wing coverts very small feathers, orangey coloured, from corncrake in Bath, back in the early noughties. Um, I knew they were corncrake, but I could never get the county bird recorder to accept them, because nobody else had that specialist knowledge of what these feathers would yeah. be. But fortunately, um, corncrakes do get taken occasionally by peregrines other places, so I ended up quite a few years later I think it's about eight years later having some more feathers of known corn crake and then I was able to match them match them with these ones that were taken earlier in 2002 in Bath and finally got it accepted about eight years later
0: <laughs> okay. now talking about Talking about corncrake, when when would they be taking the corncrake then? As it's migrated, moving in the evenings?
1: Yeah, usually usually they're taking things like corncrake in September, October time, when they are migrating south back to Africa. We don't seem to get them picked up in the spring migration. It seems to be more the okay. autumn migration. And one of the things that I've helped discover is, and, and prove, really, is that peregrines hunt at night. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm most proud of. So in the 1980s, there was a guy... Um, I've forgotten his name now, but in in Berlin. And he had um, started to sort of collect prey remains that were were inkling towards nocturnal hunting. Then when I came on the scene, I started to find lots more prey remains of birds like woodcock, little grebe, water rail, birds that would be difficult for the peregrine to catch during the day, but were all known to migrate at night and could be taken by the peregrine at at, at night. Mm -hmm. And then with the advent of technology, Derby Cathedral finally had footage of the peregrines there bringing in prey such as snipe, woodcock, till at night, and then since then we've had lots of other evidence of it. So peregrines are, they're probably doing this anyway on moonlit nights, and then with, with the advent of street lamping shining up into the night sky and lighting up migrating prey, um, they've been able to to exaggerate and do that behavior much more so we think yeah. that things like corncrake being taken on on this autumn migration is and they're not taken in big numbers but just every 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 year or every other year they might get taken in somewhere like derby or exeter yeah the impact yeah. on the population i'm sure is very very minimal
0: but what a wonderful what a wonderful piece of behavior to to be part of you know understanding and just you know pioneering the sort of discovery of it well i think Uh, i
1: think up to up till the 2000s you know it's always been very much about the peregrine's our fastest bird one of our fastest birds in the world well you know actually it is but it's also this 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 nighttime hunter as well you know like an owl and that for me adds another dimension and, and another part of the story of the peregrine that that we've only really been able to prove in the last sort of 15 years
0: or so if that do so you ever how often sorry this is just coming to my head while yeah I wasn't to interrupt you, while we're talking about nocturnal bats how do they appear in the diet frequently yeah they
1: do less so in britain but if you go to somewhere like germany where nocturnal bats are highly migratory and very visible particularly during the day then they appear a lot in the diet of the okay. peregrine and if you go to somewhere like Hungary, where bats are far more common and, and nocturnal bats come out in the day, I've seen them in, in, in um, Budapest very easily during the day, then again, they also feature in the peregrine diet. Here in Britain, less so, but they do still appear. So I've had records in Bath, um, in Exeter, nocturnal bat, pipistrelle bat, Wakefield, so they do take bats, but much less, they seem to be much less important in the diet. I think that's just because there's less bats around in Britain. We have a slightly cooler climate. A lot, many of them are, are obviously in danger because of um, ha, ha, how perhaps we, we we tidy things up in this country with our roofs and woodlands. So I think there's just this, and also there's a warmer climate in Hungary, and Germany and places like that. So I think there's just there's just more bats around, more insects to eat in those countries. So they do eat them, but but, in this country, they're primarily a bird, a bird-eating specialist, really.
0: So that moves us on. Well, it's kind of nicely another question. What's the most unusual prey item that, if you can think of one or yeah, two? Yeah, really good
1: question. So I think the one we've recorded over a hundred species in Britain now. The peregrines feeding on on all manner of different different sorts of things. I think some of the unusual ones are things like night jars that they take. Although that links very nicely with the, the nighttime. Hunting—it's mm. uh, always been in London for some reason. There's been two night jars, certainly taken in London, no doubt flying at night and catching the, the light from street lamps and the peregrines kind of capturing them. Really, yeah. um, coots are quite unusual in the diet, so they take things like water rails and and and, and moorhens quite often, um, but not coots. My theory is that coots are are darker plumage, more darker plumage than the water rail or moorhen, so they're less likely to be spotted. At night under the street lamps um, they're not a rare prey item but they're uncommon um, oh, um, and the other thing actually on the, on the, on the on the note of the of the rails which is what a coot is is um, spotted crake so spotted crakes are a really super secretive rail <clears throat> that aren't very common in Britain but they also get taken during that nocturnal migrating period there you go. so I'd say those are some of the, those are some of the rarer runs really um, trying to think what else really. You know, various different wading birds and, um, you know, woodland birds, things like that. Roseate terns occasionally get nobbled, but really it's a, it's a whole spectrum of different stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, well, clearly, obviously, yeah, across over 100 species. I know, I know, following Nick Dixon's stuff down in Exeter as well, He's he's got a huge yeah, library of, of, um, but I think yeah, when you, when you study right, the pyramids long yeah, enough, true. like
1: I have, you do see patterns of different things. So you do notice things like blacktail godwit, golden plover, lapwing appearing in the diet more and more. Once you get a bigger sample size, you do see that mm. although they have a, a huge range in their diet, there are certain species that, that are either easier to catch or are just more prevalent in the environment you know so avocets for example i mean avocets as they're increasing in numbers are appearing more and more frequently now in in the urban peregrine diets
0: brilliant yeah <laughs> okay so you know i have to talk about some other birds i'm just keeping an eye on the time yeah. um you don't you mentioned BTO bird track i know you're a big big um, supporter of the BTO, the British Trust for Ornithology, yeah, heavily involved in <laughs> various schemes and pro- projects. Yeah, there you go. Oh, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> so other birds that you you get your kicks out of, what, what else are you into monitoring? It um, doesn't have to be raptors.
1: Cuc- cuckoos at the moment. I love cuckoos. Um, one thing that really really makes me very sad or frustrated is the declining uh, decline in our insect populations but also but also then how that impacts our birds rural birds for example so many of our farmland birds but also woodland birds as well and i'm old enough to you know remember when some of these birds were more common i mean actually when i was growing up things like turtle dove were already slipping away quite quickly (sighs) But, you know, I have seen willow warblers disappear from many of my childhood haunts in Surrey, for example.
0: Yeah. Um, but
1: at the moment, cuckoos. So so for me, I really, really feel sad that we're losing our cuckoos, you know, due to a, you know, a number of different reasons, really. They love hairy caterpillars. We've lost a huge number of our moths in the countryside. So there's less food for them. Their journey to Africa, to the Congo, may also obviously have, have much more... Obstacles and dangers than it once would, but yeah, cuckoos and but also just here in the Forest of Dean, I'm just I just really really love the fact that here in the Forest of Dean we've still got lots of species that have disappeared in many other parts of the country. So you know, at the back of my garden, we've got you know nesting garden warblers, for example, which is just fabulous. We've had you know half a dozen breeding willow warblers this year. Um, we get woodcock roading over the house. So for me, it's 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 that. It's having that variety in those specialists still in, in in a wonderful kind of mosaic habitat that we've got here in 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 uh, the forest of Dean, and then in terms you know. Say, the,
0: sorry I was just going to say because of course you are a fantastic bird watcher like you've you've got an encyclopedic knowledge (laughs) and you had one you had one hell of a garden tick this year did it was it it was this year wasn't it I haven't made yeah yeah it It was March
1: March the 21st or 22nd 21st I think it was yeah so basically I was just I was just coming into the house looked up and at the height of say you know like a Douglas fir tree so not we're not talking like really super high um was this was an eagle (laughs) and it was an immature white-tailed eagle and uh, I was calling my wife to come down managed to get a couple of shots of it as it moved away Um, and then as the story unraveled it became clear that it was one of the the um, tagged birds from the Isle of Wight and it had actually been roosting in Oxfordshire. It had been um, into Wiltshire. It then visited the Slimbridge wildfowl Weapons Trust earlier that day. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, it was above our house. And when I then got to see the tracking of the bird, one of the beeps, one of, one of the um, signals that got sent to the mobile transmitter was our house. <laughs> so there was Brilliant. complete proof. There was complete proof that I wasn't just making it up. Yeah, um, It then headed over what what was also really exciting was it then headed over towards Yak Rock where there were some Raptor watchers who who also spotted it. Then it was seen near Ross and Y, and then and then over the following two weeks or three weeks, it then headed up to Yorkshire. Um, but I just was I couldn't believe it. I mean, how often do you get a white-tailed eagle over your house that's not in the Isle of Mull?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never <laughs> <Really. And> also, <laughs> what's
1: what's the probability of me? I mean, if I had been two minutes earlier i would have been inside the house and missed it
0: exactly so i
1: happened to be just you know just outside the house look up at the right moment that eagle went over it was fabulous
0: well i'm an optimist and i always think that is because you've spent so many hours sat watching nothing when you're monitoring other raptors and nothing's come off that every now and then you get that little you Little know, golden, um, yeah. golden moment to say, well done for all those hours of sat looking at nothing. <laughs> um, so yeah, good good work. Because of course, I I can't not mention as well. Um, you're a tour leader, and and that includes the UK as well. So yeah, tell us a right. bit about tell us a bit about your your tours all over the globe, and then what you're doing in the UK. Give that. A yeah, point. so
1: I've been well, I've been tour guiding now for Nature Trek for the last twelve years or so, and so I take people all around the world and in the UK to see wildlife and um although birds is one of my specialist areas i like to, I like to lead tours that incorporate lots of other wildlife, particularly cetaceans, whales, and dolphins, but can be other things as well and that's just because it, it you know it attracts a nice kind of cross section of different people and also i i you know although birds are one of my specialist areas i i i have real i get real joy from seeing butterflies, mammals, whatever it is from around the world. And I've been lucky enough to go to the Arctic and Antarctica, Madagascar. But actually, and I love those places, don't get me wrong, but I love, for example, being in Romania in the Danube Delta, just being surrounded by reed bed birds and cuckoos and snakes and being up in the Carpathians looking at bears. So you don't always have to go that far from Britain to, I think, enjoy wildlife. And then actually here, here in the Forest of Dean, I've started doing wildlife safaris with um, with the Tudor Farmhouse Hotel. Uh, I also do private ones as well. But that's all about just showing people the fabulous wildlife that's here in the Forest of Dean. People come here wanting to see deer, fallow deer. They want to come and see the wild boar. Uh, but also for me, it's about opening up their eyes. And you know, I often get people coming, for example, from London who've never been in a woodland at night. So actually... They, they might come originally to wanting to see boar, but actually for them, it, I think they go away having enjoyed the whole kind of woodland experience, you know, actually coming into the woodland, the forest, being there in the evening at dusk. We don't always see boar. We don't always see deer. So it's actually about that whole atmosphere and environment, you know. Occasionally we see the odd goshawk, Occasionally we see other things, but it's it's about being honest with people and saying, look, you know, there's no guarantee but but hopefully you'll still have a, a an all-round good experience as well
0: brilliant yeah well we'll um i'll make sure i get I, i'll in the comments i'll put your um i'll put your webs. we'll put the website up and make sure yeah lovely make sure we put, plug that and, and the books as well I, and i also
1: uh, specialize a lot in bird song as well so a lot of my work in springtime is is leading dawn chorus walks and taking people out hearing bird song and i do a lot of Identification courses as well, particularly for the BTO, but also for wildlife trusts like the Gloucestershire Wildlife Trust. And so I get a lot of enjoyment out of that as well, taking people out and helping them to, to open their ears to birdsong. And I'm learning all the time. I mean, since coming to the Forest of Dean, I've really managed to get my ear around the spotted flycatcher, which has a squeaky call that sounds very similar to baby song thrushes. Sounds very similar to the calls of robins. You know, so even even now, I'm still learning new sounds and. And actually when i go tour leading abroad it's really good for me because i'm put into the position of often my participants because when i go to a new country i'm listening to very unfamiliar birds and having to learn them and, and repeatedly yeah. ask the tour leader what they are so you know i'm never complacent about it you know i'm i'm always learning new bird songs and sounds even though i've been i do it professionally you know yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, well that that was sort of brings us. We're nearly up to an hour, which I like to hit. So that brings us on to last the last question again, which I always sort of finish on and ask everyone: What is your one? If it doesn't have to be one bit of advice, what is yeah. your advice yeah. for anyone, young or old, that wants to get is just starting or interested in getting into the natural world? So. Maybe for birds of prey as we're on Raptor A, but then you can give us one for general as well if you want. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I would I would say just get yourself out there get yourself known by people locally or, or further afield and, and get involved with things you know when I was a teenager for my work experience I worked at a wildlife hospital looking after a whole range of wildlife from baby badgers to to uh, tawny owls and things like that I had woodpeckers attached to my chest trying to feed them you know um, yeah. when I came to university I got in touch with various different researchers and I went out um, helping to crow hares that were being tagged. I was going out to help catch bats. I was helping um, um, a very good friend of mine today, um, Rob Thomas, who was researching robins and 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 how they how they eat more food on a on when they can predict there's going to be a colder night and eat less on another night. You know, and so that gave me a really kind of broad idea, and I and I dabbled in things. I did some work experience with the BBC, which I didn't particularly enjoy, and it gave me the chance to see. I didn't really want to go into that, yeah. But I still stuck with the BBC, and that actually what worked better for me was to be a consultant and to advise and to be uh, on the other side. I didn't want to be actually in the production. I wanted to be more as a consultant. So yep. my advice really is to get out there, dabble, get a taster of things. You know, and see what you like, what you don't like, but also it gives you a really good chance to get yourself known. And the one thing that I did, I think, from my mid-teens onwards, was get myself known. And even today, there's people in the RSPB who still remember me when I was 15 years old because I I talked to them and I got to know them and 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 that sort of stuff. So you know, so if you're particularly wanting to get into the world of raptors, I you know, it's about getting in touch with raptor groups and falconry centres and and you know getting on hands-on and, and, and getting the experience of, of working with those birds and and getting the field experience as well i don't think a lot enough young people i don't mean this in a patronizing way so apologies if it sounds patronising, but i don't think enough young people ha- have that and get that field experience and so I think you know it's getting out there, you know, getting getting to going out there, with people that have got licenses, so you can actually really understand how you find these nests, what to look for, and that will put you in really good stead then for for both training, but also then actually getting jobs. I think in the future as well.
0: It's you're you're absolutely right, and and just when you were talking there about getting out there and and learning new things, and you know, a classic example of that for me was when I moved down to Gloucester for three years and met Rob in Husbands. And he took me out. uh, And when I first started monitoring gossips. And interestingly, the memory came up, it was seven years ago. The memory came up today. My first Gosselt mess that I climbed to under license with Rob. And when you go out with someone like Rob, who really lives and breathes in the forest, (laughs) yeah, but people don't probably don't know who he is. But the wealth of knowledge that he I learned from him just spending time, absolutely. I was
1: asking him about cuckoos and tree pipits the other day, you know, because um there are some fabulous books you can tap into but also talking to amazing field workers like rob that are out there all the time you can pick up some really amazing stuff as well so it's it's learning off of other people i think that's really important and and also the other the other thing because i remember being in my early 20s and thinking i'm better than everybody else and you know i can do this but i think the older i've got it's realizing really that you're you're learning all the time and that you're yeah. not necessarily any better than anybody else, but you, but you can still carve your own journey that complements what other people are doing and what have you, you know.
0: What a brilliant way to finish. <laughs> Love it. Perfect, right, Ed? We're we're about bang on an hour. Thank you for covering me when I dropped. No problem. When I dropped out. You're, you're a star. And Once right, I realised
1: you weren't coming back, I just carried on.
0: <laughs> yeah, you was you, you was spot on. That was that was really good. Um, right, okay. Uh, thank you for your time. No problem. Uh, okay, Thanks Ed, everybody for watching. Brilliant. 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 All right. Cheers, Take care. Bye bye.